more beautiful than anyone ever. Every day, you're the same. You never change. No, never. here in the house of the Lord, in this nice warm place coming in from the frigid, frigid cold. Please stand and join us as we begin our service by singing our praises to God.
Second Corinthians 5, 11, verse 11 to 21 says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people what we are explaining to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend, commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is sin rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of a mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. we've come today to worship you and to ask that you take everything of us as we give it to you. We want this time together to not only be an opportunity to glorify you, but also for you to work in us. And we know that you're present here. Just help us to be open to you, the things you want to say to us and the ways you want to work in us. We offer ourselves in this time of worship to you for your glory, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship before you're seated this morning. Very good. Down in WK town.
Well, as we come together for worship today, there are lots of things happening in the life of the church. Uh, one thing I want to, uh, to do is to introduce you to Stacy Hinderleiter. Stacy is uh, known by some of you, I see. Okay. Uh, she, she, is, uh, gradu- she graduated from college in December, and she's going to be working as a full-time intern for us this semester. We're really excited about that. I'm sure you'll be seeing her and hearing from her, so we want you to be nice to her and uh, to... I sort of say treat her like you do the rest of us, but uh, okay. <laughs> she should get the full treatment. That would be good. But uh, we're, we're happy to have Stacy working with us during this semester. And thank you for your support of her ministry. Uh, just note that um, small groups begin tonight. There's an insert in your bulletin about those. And um, encourage you to be a part of a small group, either one of these or some other kind. I think it's helpful to our faith. Wednesday evenings, all of our ministries continue on regular schedule, and next Sunday, worship at 8, 29, 40, and 11. There are uh, a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin, uh, things related to us locally as well as things in the world. We want to pray for the Haiti dental and medical team that's uh, down in Haiti right now, and uh, they had some illnesses before they left, so some of the people who were planning to go weren't able to, so that's going to wrench in some of their plans, but God is at work, and so we pray that he will... Uh, they'll know his presence as they minister there in Haiti. Also, uh, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in northern Nigeria. There are reports coming out that there's a lot of threat of persecution in that part of the world as in other places of the world. But we certainly want to remember them in our prayers. A couple of local um, concerns related to health issues. Uh, John Smith, who is the father of Shelley Noyes, is having surgery on Tuesday to remove a cancerous growth from his colon. And we want to remember him. And also for Clayton Templeton. Um, Clayton has been in the Wellsville ICU with pneumonia. And now they're worried about that affecting his heart. And so he's being transferred to Strong up in Rochester. And I know that uh, they would, family would appreciate our prayers for Clayton as, as well as for the whole family. And uh, we pray because we know God is faithful and, and good. And he hears our prayers. Can you guys please stand for the reading of the gospel? Today's scripture is from Matthew 25, 31 through 46. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those to his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance and the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, and into the internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You guys can sit and the ushers will come forward for tithes and offerings. I once was lost in darkest night 
As we turn to this time of prayer, if you'd like to use the altar as your place to pray, I invite you to join me. Father, in this moment of silence, we lay before you the burdens and the concerns that are pressing in upon us, things for ourselves, things for others. We offer them to you because we know that you hear us and you answer us. So hear our prayers.
Heavenly Father, we pray for all of these burdens and concerns that weigh upon us. We pray that you will comfort every heart that's grieving. Heal every person who is struggling with illness and disease and pain. We think especially of John Smith and Clayton Templeton. We pray, Father, that you will restore what is broken in our lives, our relationships. We pray, Father, that you will help us as we think about the future. Decisions that need to be made and uncertainties that hang around our necks. We feel worry and fear and anxiety about what's ahead. Give us your peace and make us, make us good listeners as we respond to your leading. We pray for this world. There's so much violence and hatred. and We ask that you will make us agents of peace and of reconciliation and of forgiveness. And this weekend when we honor the memory of Dr. King, and we are reminded again of his messages and the words that he spoke, we pray, Father, that you will help us. Help us to to be people who care about reconciliation, about breaking down walls that divide us, about being people on this earth as you created us to be. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. So many of them face the threat of opposition and persecution every day. We think especially of our brothers and sisters in northern Nigeria and ask that you would, you would protect them and that you would help them to be a faithful witness for you even in the midst of all that comes against them. Father, we, we know little of that kind of life, but help us to continue to be beacons of light in the midst of darkness right around us. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Hearing our prayers, moving in our lives and moving in this world. You have blessed us immensely. There's no way really to, to recount all of your blessings. But we come today giving thanks. knowing that you hear our prayers, that you answer in the way that is best, and that we can always trust you. We offer our prayers this day and every day through the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing.
I was thinking this week about a uh, story that I heard a number of years ago. It took place when uh, John Wesley was near the end of his life, maybe a year or two before he died. And he was, he was having a meeting with um, Charles Simeon, who was uh, fast becoming one of the leaders of the Reformed movement of the Anglican Church in England. They had uh, opposite theological views about a number of issues, and one of them was the sovereignty of God and the free will of human beings. And so they, they decided to get together one day and to talk through their differences. When they got done, they, just, they reported that once the terms were defined, they really weren't that far apart. But they also discovered that the answer to this great theological dilemma was not in one extreme or the other, nor was it someplace in the middle, but it was in both extremes. God is fully sovereign, and human beings have free will. And somehow we have to learn to live in the tension of those two truths. The more I think about that story, the more I realize that Virtually all of the, the, what we believe and, and what it means to live as a Christian is going to, in one way or another, be about living in the tension of extremes. This is certainly so much of our theology. We talk about Jesus being fully God and fully human. And the great heresies of the church have been when people have said, well, Jesus is fully God, but he's not fully human. Or that Jesus is fully human, but he's not fully God. The other alternative is to say, well, Jesus is half God and half human. And that's not right either. The the truth is, the scriptures tell us he's fully God and fully human. And honestly, I don't really understand that. But that's the tension, the paradox of what we believe about Jesus. We find the same thing true when we talk about faith and, and good works. And we talk about the fact that we can know God and yet there's so much we can never know about God. These, these truths that, that stand in tension with each other are central to 
to, to understanding our faith. And I've discovered that the, the more mature we come in the faith, the more we begin to realize those tensions and to live in them as a part of the mystery of who God is and, and the, full, the mystery of all that it means to be in relationship with God and to live for him in this world. It's for that reason that I've been thinking that over the next few weeks, I want us to think about some of these paradoxes of our faith. Some of these, some of these issues that we have to hold in tension or else they will get out of balance and we move into heresy. And I want to begin today by talking about judgment and forgiveness. Now, Scripture doesn't hesitate to declare the judgment of God in response to sin. Now, we might want to back away from it. We might be a little bit embarrassed to talk about it. We tend to shy away from the Scriptures that describe it. But it's prominent throughout all of God's Word. The the justice and the judgment of God is woven throughout the pages of Scripture. All have sinned. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the result of that is the judgment of God. Now the response of some people to this idea of God as judge is denial. People find judgment reprehensible. So we simply are just going to act like it doesn't exist. How could a loving, good God be judgmental toward people? How could he judge people? I mean, after all, we're not that bad. We aren't doing that much wrong. Who are you to tell me what's right or wrong anyway, God? Now, we hear people say that they can't believe in a God of judgment. They just can't fathom that. But, of course, as soon as we read about uh, another oil spill or another drunk driver that uh, kills a carload of high school students, or we hear the report of another woman sexually assaulted or political prisoners being tortured or a terrorist attack on innocent civilians or one more corporate giant fleecing the pension funds of its employees. And we want to rise up in judgment. And now we want justice, and we want judgment. And in fact, we get pretty irritated with God when he doesn't bring about judgment on these people that we think deserve it. And it's pretty clear that the issue is not that we don't believe that there's a God, of, that God is, is one who judges, We just don't want God judging us. But the truth is, because of our sin, we all deserve judgment. We all deserve judgment. We can act like we don't, and we can deny it, but the reality is, we all deserve judgment. Because we're all sinners. We struggle to believe that's true, and yet it is. I guarantee you that you have committed sins, if not today, yesterday, the week before, and if you haven't yet today, you will. We're human beings. We do wrong. We sin. We hurt each other. We grieve each other. We hurt God. We disobey God. We, there's, the litany is endless of the ways in which we sin and deserve justice. Now, here's the thing. The moment we, the, 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 this idea of judgment enters the conversation, we tend to interpret it as God being capricious. He's just, his anger is out of control. His punishment as a means, is sort of a means of soothing the savage beast. And it's hard for us to understand a God of wrath and judgment because we can only picture our wrath and our judgment. And we get angry because we've been hurt. We get angry and we lash out at people. Our goal is to make people feel our pain. Our goal is to make people pay for what they have done to us or to someone we care about. It's always about retribution. But God's wrath is not rooted in retribution. God's wrath is actually rooted in his love. The reason scriptures talk so much about about the impending judgment is that it's God's way of warning us about what is to come. We could have a scripture that didn't say anything about judgment at all. And we might like it better, but it would lead us down the road to, to hell. The reason the scripture talks so much about judgment 
is because it's a reality. And God doesn't want us to experience it. He wants us to turn away from it. And so he warns us. It's rooted in his love and his compassion. If you are standing outside after service and you see a little child running toward the street in the traffic out here on Highway 19, and you watch as, as their parent grabbed their arm and yelled at them and pulled them aside and really began to let them have it. Would you think to yourself, wow, that person is totally out of control? Or would you think to yourself, that parent cares about their child because they don't want that child being hit by a car in a road? There is something of that in the conversation that we see in Scripture about God's judgment. It's not just because God is angry at us. It's because God loves us. Because God wants more for us than judgment that comes from our sin. And this brings us really to the cross. Everything God has ever done for us has cost him. And everything God has ever done for us and given to us and promised to us has brought judgment upon him. Jesus is on the cross. He's bearing upon himself our judgment. And the great paradox is that God puts himself in a place to be judged for us. So that we might be forgiven. But forgiveness doesn't mean anything if there isn't real judgment. If judgment's just a ruse, then what's the point of of forgiveness? I mean, why do we even need to talk about forgiveness? If there's no reality to judgment and the consequences of that, then forgiveness means nothing. It's really not forgiveness at all if there is nothing which to be forgiven. See, we don't have to convince God to forgive us. God loves to forgive us. That's why he went to the cross. Francis Thompson's famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, tells of a soul that's fleeing from God's seeking love, trying to hide from God everywhere possible, run every direction possible, and he can't get away from God. Because God's passion and God's desire is to bring this wayward child back to him. That's what the psalmist is telling us when he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. This passage about sheep and goats that we read a few moments ago is, I think, sort of confusing for a lot of evangelical Christians because it doesn't fit our conversion theology. You know, we see forgiveness, if we're going to read this, we, we tend to see forgiveness as contingent upon believing the right things or saying the right words in a prayer. Now, it's important to believe right things and it's important to, to, to say right things when we pray and, and to, to ask God to forgive us. But at some point, forgiveness must be something deeper than that. Forgiveness comes to us when we acknowledge that we deserve judgment. And instead, we want God's will for our lives. I mean, I know a lot of people through the years who have said, God, forgive me. But they only said it to get out of a jam. They really weren't interested in living their life for Christ. They just wanted to be free from whatever was was threatening them in the moment. And this, this parable that Jesus tells here helps us to understand a little bit more of the depth of what forgiveness is about. Jesus is clearly talking about the judgment day and eternity. And yet there's no mention here about praying certain words or, or about believing certain things. And that makes us a little bit nervous based on what we've been taught. And it often leads us then to deconstruct the scriptures. Our problem is that when we read this, we interpret that helping people is a means to an end. We believe that Jesus is telling us that if you want to get into heaven, then you help people in need. And that doesn't fit our theology. And honestly, it shouldn't fit our theology. 
Because I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. I think he's saying that if you want to know whether you're still under judgment or if you have truly surrendered your life to the forgiveness of Christ, then look at how you treat people. Especially people who are most needy and least desirable. Helping people isn't a formula for getting into heaven and escaping hell. But helping people is the most natural response of a person who's experienced Christ's forgiveness and is no longer living under the judgment of sin. Because when we talk about forgiveness, it's about something that changes our lives. It's not just something we do in a moment and then toss it aside and say, I'm good. Experiencing the forgiveness of God is about transformation. It's about wanting his will on earth as it is in heaven for us and for everything that happens. It's about surrendering ourselves to him. When we receive forgiveness, we're, we're asking God to change us, to, make, to become the center of who we are instead of us being the center of who we are. And when we come to that place, now we're beginning to understand what forgiveness is about. It doesn't mean we have to get our lives all squared up in order for God to forgive us because none of us could do that anyway. But it's looking to the cross and seeing that it's in the cross, it's in that surrender that Christ does to the Father. That he's calling us to surrender to him. It's interesting to me that when you read this parable and you read a lot of the things that Jesus says... The judgment is reserved for those who don't want their priorities on earth to match up with God's priorities in heaven. Judgment's reserved for people who simply don't want what heaven offers. Some will say that we're all going to get into heaven, and if you didn't want what God wants on earth, then when you get to heaven, he'll just change you so that you'll want that. But I think that's backwards. I think that that heaven is the ultimate and perfect fulfillment of God's kingdom, this family gathering. It's not about being exclusive as we tend to think of it in terms of keeping people out that we don't want there. It's simply a place where the fullness of God reigns. And as Lewis describes in The Great Divorce, if we don't want God's priorities, then God's not going to have to banish us from heaven. We're going to run from it. Because we have no desire to be absorbed by it. Why would we think we would want what God is offering in heaven if we don't want it now? We've experienced forgiveness. We're beginning to understand what it means to know the power of the forgiveness of Christ. When we're beginning to when we begin to want. God's kingdom in our lives as it is in heaven and in this world as it is in heaven. And what's interesting is that when we begin to experience that forgiveness of Christ deep in our souls and it begins to change us and transform us, it changes how we treat other people. And we tend to think that getting rid of judgment and taking on forgiveness is just about us. But it's about others as well. If we don't really believe that we need, if we don't really believe that we deserve judgment, we're going to be apathetic toward people. If we haven't really experienced and opened our lives to the forgiveness of Christ, we're going to be apathetic toward people. Matthew 25 tells us that the natural response is to care about people. Our willingness to be judged by the world so that others might experience God's forgiveness. is so I think a lot of what Jesus is saying here. That we're willing to engage ourselves with people that everybody else ignores. And people are going to look at us and say, what is wrong with them? But we're willing to do that. We're willing to take on the judgment of the world about even things like this. Because God has done so much for us. 
And that kind of perspective and that kind of interaction with people isn't just about heaven. It's about now, too. Dennis Kinlaw talks about how Abraham had really no concept of the afterlife. At that stage in his understanding of God and of people's understanding of God, they really didn't have a solid understanding of anything beyond this earth. And yet, when God says, Abraham, I want you to pull up roots. I want you to give up what's comfortable and easy. And I want you to go live a a life of being a nomad for me. Abraham packed up and went. And Abraham doesn't make that decision because he knows that whatever sacrifices he makes now are going to be rewarded in eternity. Abraham makes that decision because he's come to see that following God now is far a far better life than not following God now. That's, that's a lot of the heart of the gospel and the heart of our witness of the gospel. At the risk of being misunderstood, I think we've made a huge mistake in how we've approached evangelism and missions over the last X number of years. We've tended to say we're going to go share Christ with people so that they get into heaven. And everything is about someday, someday, that day. But we, when we do that, first of all, we're motivated typically by guilt, but also it tends to be sort of a gunslinger mentality. How many people can I get to say the prayer? And we start putting the notches on our belt. And I think if anything, Matthew 25 is telling us, it's about caring for people. It's about compassion for people. It's about helping people experience the forgiveness of Christ now, not just someday. I mean, I'm convinced God has, in his unlimited knowledge of people, God who can see into our hearts and understand everything about us, God is not limited in saving people to what we are able to do, how much we're able to witness. I think, yes, we are witnesses, and yes, we need to, we've been called to go and to tell people, and that's imperative for us. But I can't fathom that God is going to condemn people Because we didn't do what we were supposed to do. Or because our our work fell short. Or because we didn't care enough. Or because we didn't get to them in time. Surely God is bigger than that. And I'm not talking about universalism. God is still going to judge people. But he knows them. But our call to bear witness is about helping people experience the forgiveness of Christ now. It's so that they can be set free from all the bondage and the chains that enslave people now. So that they can know the freedom and the joy and the blessing of Christ in their life now. That's why we want to tell people about Jesus. And yes, they will eventually spend eternity with Christ and that will be awesome. But God wants them to know that now. He wants to set them free now, just as he is setting us free now. Transform lives now. It's that kind of of love and compassion for people that this tension of judgment and forgiveness can lead us to be and to do. Years ago, I... I knew a woman who was a part of a a small country church. I don't know, maybe 60, 65 people. As far as I know, she was the only only person in that church who had a college education. She had grown up in a Christian home, and she was very vocal for Christ. She taught, I think probably the, the one Sunday school class that they had, she taught it. She, uh, she led things. She was on their leadership board. She, she talked a lot about holy living. She, she was, talked a lot about Jesus. But she was also the harshest, meanest, most power-hungry person in that church. Everybody in the church was intimidated by her. I was intimidated by her. 
And she loved to hold that over people. I was thinking about her in the last few days. And I'm trying to figure out why she was the way she was. And I don't know exactly, but I suspect either she didn't think she really deserved judgment. Or she didn't really believe that God loved her enough to forgive her. And either way, her life was a mess. She didn't know the joy and the blessing of Christ in her life. And I suspect that you are probably struggling with one, maybe both, of those two tensions. About really accepting the fact that that your sin means you deserve judgment. But also recognizing that in Christ, he took the judgment upon himself and in his grace and love offers you and me forgiveness and freedom and blessing and joy. Not just someday, but today, now. See, God speaks of judgment so often not because he can't wait to let us have it, but because he knows that we are lost without his forgiveness. And until we come to believe that we deserve judgment, his forgiveness really isn't going to mean that much to us. So rather than running from God's judgment... We're called to acknowledge it and to surrender to his all-encompassing forgiveness. And out of that forgiveness, God gives us grace to look at people who we think deserve judgment and to instead, like him, offer forgiveness and grace and mercy because of what he's given us. Heavenly Father, we wrestle with judgment and forgiveness. And you know the wrestling in each one of our hearts this morning. You know what we need to hear. Speak it to us. And help us to hear it clearly. With openness of mind and heart and spirit. That we might be set free. We ask this. Through Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing. was lost in darkest night, yet thought I
the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.